My name is Jacob Stoops. And I'm Jeff Luella. And you're listening to the Page Two Podcast. This is our podcast about the people of the SEO industry. We chronicle the real life stories, experiences, challenges, and advice from some of the most amazing people in the business. In this week's episode, we've talked with Chima Medje, content strategist, SEO copywriter, and founder of Zenith Copy. We talk about growing up in Nigeria, going to college, working at hotels, working as a bartender, landing a government job, which she still works today, why she decided to get a second job, how she became a copywriter at a content mill churning out 100,000 words per month, and how that backbreaking job led her to found her own copywriting company, Zenith Copy. We also touch on why she decided specifically to focus on SaaS and tech companies, how she's gone about developing her personal brand and establishing her presence within the SEO industry. For our core topic, we talk about topic clusters and long-form content, how to properly execute a topic cluster strategy. We share our thoughts on whether long-form content is right for all types of pages and talk about how to use topic clusters and long-form content to sell your products and services. Finally, we answer Twitter questions of the week and award some more swag. So get your popcorn ready as we tell Chima's SEO story and have another great roundtable discussion. Hey, everybody. It is Jacob Stoops, and we are back with episode number 73 of the Page 2 podcast. If you don't know me, I am an SEO director at Search Discovery. Uh, and today is going to be an interesting episode because I am not being joined by Jeff. Uh, Jeff is actually on vacation, so we are going back to our roots uh, from season one of the show. I did the first 25 episodes uh, by myself. So unfortunately for the guests today, you're going to have to listen to me drone on a little bit more than I usually do, but that is okay uh, because we have yet another amazing guest today and we're just going to bring her on uh, right away. So it's not not just me, uh, you know, talking, talking to myself. So uh, we're going to bring her on. It's Chima Medje. How are you doing, Chima? I'm fine, Jeff. I'm Jacob. Thank you for having me. I was just about to call you Jeff. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, hey, howdy, hey. Yes, that is Jeff's. Uh, that is Jeff's thing. Yeah. So it's it is um it's interesting. It's uh when I started this show, I feel like I was very very comfortable. Uh, you know, being by myself as the sole sole host. Uh, and you know, now that I've had uh, Jeff for almost 50 episodes, you kind of get used to having, uh, a, you know, a little bit of a crutch to lean on, a co-host to kind of break up the the conversation. Uh, so it's going to be an interesting, interesting episode. I tend to talk a lot. Uh, sometimes I feel like I talk over poor, poor Jeff, even though we share the share the podcast. So I think this is going to give me an opportunity probably to exercise that a little bit more so that in the last two episodes of the season, uh, Jeff can come back and be ready to talk as much as he as much as he wants. <laughs> Sounds good to me. 
Yes, and of course you're going to be talking uh, quite a bit yourself. So, uh, Chima, I did not actually introduce you from a title perspective, which I normally do, because I was focused on making sure that I was getting the pronunciation right. Which, as uh, as my listeners know, I have uh, repeatedly, repeatedly struggled with, uh, admittedly, uh, over the course of my my time running this podcast, uh, to the detriment of sometimes my my guests. <laughs> and I want to make sure I get that right. But you are a content strategist and uh, SEO copywriter for Zenith Copy. That's your company, correct? Yes, yes, that's right. So you should call yourself the CEO. (laughs) (laughs) Immediately jump in and say you should call yourself something different. Not awkward at all. (laughs) Nah, nah, nah. Calling myself the CEO makes it look like I have people working under me and I work alone. (laughs) So sounds better when I say freelancer. Absolutely. Yes. No, that is um, that is awesome. So before we dive into Chima's story, we are just going to do, uh, you know, like we do every uh, every week, uh, we're going to talk about two things. So, of course, we want to talk about Hamlet's company uh, rank sense. So Hamlet Batista, I'm sure you've heard by now, if you're a new listener, uh, uh, you may not know we had Hamlet Batista uh, on our show last November. And unfortunately, uh, in January, he passed away uh, from COVID. Uh, Super unfortunate, super, super sad. Uh, And, you know, he meant so much to our industry. He was uh, the the pioneer in a lot of in a lot of ways. And he was an amazing person to talk to with a lot of friends uh, and colleagues uh, within the industry. So we've been just trying to do our best to make sure that uh, all of the people left behind, uh, including those at his company, uh, are able to kind of maintain and push his mission on. And we want to send uh, people to their website to hopefully uh, do business with RankSense. Uh, It truly is an amazing company uh, and they have a really, really great value proposition. And if you don't know about their company, uh, let me just kind of explain it to you. So. If you if you've worked in SEO for any length of time, especially on the agency side, you will know uh, that probably the biggest biggest single problem when you do not have direct access to the website is getting your recommendations implemented, uh, and that is where RankSense really is really strong uh, in terms of the way that they that they approach uh, the SEO market. And the reason I say that is because this this tool. It, it pretty much allows you to get changes implemented without developer intervention. Uh, and not only that, it helps you prove out the value of your changes before a developer uh, would commit any of those changes to code. And it does it through uh, something called called Edge or Cloud uh, cloud SEO. So they work with Cloudflare. Uh, I believe that they're still kind of working behind the scenes on a relationship with Akamai. These are the biggest CDNs uh, in the world. And what they will do is their software will latch onto your website and it will allow you to make changes uh, through, uh, which is amazing, this part I find really amazing, a Google spreadsheet. So you want to update a page title, a meta description, on-page copy, uh, on-page tag, or uh, meta tags, on uh, you know other on-page elements. You want to add structured data. Uh, all of these things you can do through RankSense. 
without having to get your developers uh, involved. And it literally is as simple as going into a spreadsheet uh, and entering data into the spreadsheet. And then that data will start populating on your site out on the edge, right? So it won't necessarily fix the problem at the source, but what it will do once you make the change is it's gonna show you the incremental lift uh, and value of the changes that you're making to your site so that you can then take that information and data and take it back to your developers and say, see, this thing worked. Now let's actually build it in to the structure and the code base so that we don't have to do it out on the edge anymore. So for those of us that, that sometimes languish for months, and in my case, sometimes even years waiting for recommendations to get implemented, uh, this type of a tool is just amazing. Uh, amazing, amazing, amazing. So definitely, uh, if you want to learn more about it, go to uh, ranksense.com. Uh, and of course, the other the other organization that we've been uh, really promoting, uh, you know, this uh, this season, uh, and will continue to do so until the end of the season, is of course United Search, uh, and that is because uh, kind of their their mission. Uh, is really near and dear to our hearts. Both Jeff and I believe in a high degree of balance in the perspectives that are being brought forth from an, from the industry. Uh, and I would say that for far too long, the perspectives in the industry in terms of the people that are perceived as being really, really important voices uh, have been you know, it's just not been balanced enough. That's probably the best way that I can explain it, right? So there are a lot of really underrepresented groups uh, that haven't been given enough play, enough airtime, and their perspectives have not been over the course of time given enough credence. And that is something that uh, United Search is working to change. It's working to uh, help people from underrepresented groups, BIPOC, LBGTQIA+, women, uh, and those 55 and older uh, to you know, have the opportunity to speak at some of the world's biggest conferences, have the opportunity to work with mentors that have been there uh, and done that. So if you want to learn more about United Search, uh, you can go to uh, unitedsearch.org or on Twitter, you can visit them at search underscore United. Excellent. All right. So Chima, you are now on the hot seat. Uh, so I guess I would ask, uh, you know, tell us your story. Who are you? Tell our listeners about yourself. Okay, so um, I run Zenith Copy. It's a freelance SEO content website where I create content and strategy for SaaS and tech companies. But I also have clients in other verticals like financial services. And that's what I do. I started out copywriting, I think, in 2017, work with a an agency or rather a content mule in the UK did that until 2019 when I broke out to start my own business. And I've been doing that ever since. So we like to get um, pretty introspective uh, on our podcast. And, you know, we like to, to go back and, you know, learn about what are people's backstories and origin stories, right? So before you started your company, what did you do before that? And even okay. like going all the way back, I, I would ask. So something I haven't mentioned yet is that you live in Nigeria. So we've we've talked to guests on this show, of course, from from North America, South America, uh, the a Asian continent, uh, all over uh, Australia, Europe, the UK. 
we've not yet talked to somebody from from Africa. So I would ask you, what is it? What's it like? Uh, you know, our audience is heavily skewed towards the U.S. and the U.K. So I'm not sure that people have a lot of exposure to what it might be like growing up in Africa, in your case, specifically Nigeria uh, and making your way, you know, through to become somebody that is a, you know, a pretty active participant in the digital marketing and SEO community. Okay, so I grew up in Lagos, Nigeria, family of seven, five kids and two parents. So it was very, it was a very interesting childhood. Although we didn't have a lot of money, we grew up very poor, but my parents were obsessed, like totally obsessed with giving us a good education. So after university, when you get, once you finish university, it's this African thing where they kind of just, every, everybody just leaves you alone and you are suddenly on your own. And now you have to start making decisions. You have to fend for yourself. You have no assistance. And there I was 20 years old with no clue on what I was going to do with my life. I worked in a hotel for like two years. I was receptionist, bartender, uh, working in the kitchen, just did all sorts of stuff. And I did that until 2012, no, 2013, 14, 2014. Yeah, I was, I worked in a hotel for three years. And then I met this man who was a politician, very influential. And I walked up to him with my CV and I'm like, I'm frustrated. I need a job. What can you do to help me? And then he took my CV and he helped me get a job. I still do that job to today. I'm a government um, research officer. I'm planning and research officer with a local government. That's like my main job. SEO is actually my second job. Yeah, most people don't know this, but I have a government job. So I started working there in 2014, but it was boring as, oh God, it was incredibly boring. Like government jobs, you just go to the office, you sit down, you just, um, you watch movies, you, it, you're basically just chilling. And it was so much free time. I, I just needed something to do with my free time. And then I went online, I started researching, um, computer jobs, work from home jobs, most jobs. There were so many options, but I could write. I'd been running a kind of like a um, hobby blog for like seven years where I just talked about the issues we're facing in Nigeria, issues with um, our governments. Like there are so many issues in Nigeria that it's been possible for me to get into all of them. So I used to just like vent out my frustration on my personal blog. So I'm like, okay, Chima, you can actually blog, you can write. Why don't you just find a way to make money from this skill? So one Sunday evening, I was sitting down at home, just browsing through, through um, job ads. And then I see this gig. They're looking for a remote copywriter. It's a UK company. At the time, I did not think about why a UK company would leave where white people, where native English speakers are, and come to Africa to look for writers. But what they do is that they come to developing countries and they find ridiculously cheap writers to write like high-quality content for them. So I joined this agency which is actually a content meal. And I started working for them. Started out writing um, 8,500 words a day. By the second month, I was doing 2,000 words a day. Progressed to 3,000 words a day. Moved on to 4,000 and then 5,000 words a day. Monday to Friday. My schedule was like, wake up in the morning at, at um, 2 a.m., write on to 5 a.m., go for a run, and then head over to my government job. Come home work some more, and then go to bed at 8 p.m. It was brutal. I, I think I started developing neck pain after a while. I had to start wearing braces, neck braces, back braces. It was just a lot. But after 18 months, I started thinking of leaving because 
there was no there are no good opportunities in a content meal, obviously. I went from earning five hundred dollars to earning six hundred dollars and then thinking I was making money. I joined this um club on, on Facebook called the Copywriters Club, and that was that was like the life-changing moment for me. I saw this copywriter who was talking about charging five hundred dollars for a piece of blog post, and I was like five hundred dollars for one blog post when I make five hundred dollars a month for writing a hundred thousand words. It was mind-blowing insane I, I took like a day off just to digest and process everything and then i was like okay chima you've got to think of something else to do to make money still doing the same copy so i started interacting with more people in copywriting club somebody shared their rates card with me someone shared their contracts with me someone shared their proposal with me people are really helpful then i joined linkedin i became very active on linkedin i was like okay linkedin is going to be my tool for lead generation but what the heck am I going to post? So I started following copywriters, marketers to see what kind of content they were creating. My goal was to see what the people really resonate with. What do the successful people really talk about? I started seeing that some of them just talk nonsense. Basically, there was no just generic advice that you can't really do anything with it. X those guys. But there were those that were giving like practical advice that you could take home and then implement immediately. And people would really really get into what they were saying and resonate with that and want to work with them. Those were the kind of people that I wanted to be like. And after studying LinkedIn for like three months, I was like, okay, yes, I'm ready. I'm ready to start using LinkedIn as a tool for legend. I, I got lucky or maybe I was smart. I don't know. But my first post on LinkedIn, I talked about my journey and people really liked it. And I generated like 20 to 30 leads with my first post on LinkedIn send my first client that same day, send another client through a referral, and I just kept going. I was still working for the content meal. My goal was to have like at least a couple of clients before I left the content meal. Then I sent my first US client, sent my first Australian client, and it just took off from there. But I still had a problem here. Yeah. The problem was that I was on the charging on the value myself. I was writing for maybe 0.05 words. That's like $50 for a thousand words or $70. And I remember somebody, the first person who reached out to me, who said, when I told him that I was charging $50 for a thousand words, and he laughed. He laughed and he said, that's ridiculous. You live in Nigeria. Why should you be charging that much? I can only pay you $15 for a thousand words. It was the audacity and how he said it that made me think that, okay, you might be overcharging here. But I had like this internal battle with myself where I decided, okay, no, there is no way $15 for a thousand words makes sense. You're not going from making less than um, $500 for a hundred thousand words to earning this shitty amount of money. And that's how it has always been having to talk myself out of gaslighting from people who say I should be charging less, having to always understand my value, walk through that mindset, keep growing, keep growing, keep growing until I get to the point where I am now charging $900 as a basic price for content. So that's kind of like my story with copywriting. I still have to always find the balance between doing SEO content and the government job so that clients don't even know that Shima has a day job or that she's combining freelancing with anything else. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask, um, God, uh, you work in a day job, which is, you know, 40, 50, probably sometimes, yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, it's probably a ten, regular- uh, Eight to 10 hours a day for the, for the content. Yeah. Meal. Yeah. Oh, no, 10, yeah, 10 to 12 hours a day for the content meal. 
and plus your government jobs. So like, to me, that sounds like 80 to 100 hours a week. That's literally backbreaking work. You're producing 100,000 pieces of words uh, per month. And then you take on freelance uh, in addition to that. And you're you're also a parent, correct? Yeah, I have a nephew, a nine-year-old, nephew, a nine-year-old who lives with me. He's my nephew. Okay. Well, he's right. caregiver. Okay. Okay. How, I mean, like, how the hell do you do that? Like, when do you sleep? That's amazing. I but sleep it's, from it's, 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. From 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. Wow. I, it's it's both amazing and it's um it's a, it's a little sad. Like, it's, it's and, and I don't mean that in, like, a derogatory yeah, way. Yeah, I understand. But it sucks. I understand. I understand. That's hard. Um, I understand. And you mentioned, you know, when you're you're working for this content mill, who I'm assuming, you know, you're they do this to other people. You mentioned physical tolls that literally writing. I'm I'm only thinking of the mental toll of like, what is it like to have to produce that much coherent thought and put it down on paper every day? I don't think that I could do it uh, and still be good after a while. I think that I would be start getting numb to the quality uh that i'm that i'm producing so how do you how do you not get there and then what you mentioned like the physical toll like how does that begin to start taking a physical toll on you because that's crazy yeah like that 18 months was it 18 months yeah 18 months where i worked for that company it was brutal it just started with like you start to get numbs in your numb in your um, thumbs, and then it starts with your knuckles, and then it moves on to here yeah, your wrists gets to your wrist, and then from your wrist you start to feel pain here, yeah? your elbow weight rests on the on the chair, and then you start to feel pain in your neck from having to sit upright for hours. I remember the first day I had that neck pain. It was like after a year of working for that agency. And then I had to get a neck brace. And then after a while, you start to feel pain in your back because you are sitting down for 10 hours a day on a chair. And then I started wearing a back brace, a neck brace. Oh my God. I I, I had so much so many aids. And then I started having um migraine from looking at the screen. No matter how dull I made the screen, no matter what I do to prevent that, because I was looking at the screen for so many hours in a day, I started having migraines. And then I was also dealing with like that mental torture of the fact that there is no security in this job. Like if I get sick or if I have to take a day off, the pay is deducted from what I'm going to earn at the end of the month. I also have to think of the quality because the quality has to be like top-notch every single time you send in content. They had project managers who would look at the work and if it's not good enough, they send it back. So these are all things I had to factor in. It was just, it was just insane. It was just insane. I still don't know how I survived those 18 months. I think I survived just because I needed money. The poverty will give you this energy, this ability to focus and to do what needs to be done. I think that's the power of poverty. I was, I was languishing and I just needed a way out and this job was it. Do you do you want to name who, who is the like who is this company? They sound awful. Yeah, you you can sound you can find them on my LinkedIn. It's like they are the company I worked with. They are on my LinkedIn page, so it's an easy for anybody to see there. Okay, well they, they you know I I'm just saying this on the surface without knowing much about the company other than oh, what you told me. They, they sound awful. awful. They are yeah. awful because because 
we weren't even getting paid on time. That's another thing. Like we finished the work at the end of the month. You're supposed to get paid. And you, you would still have like periods where you, you get old for like two weeks after. So you need to keep writing because if you say you're going to stop writing, then you're only going to get paid for what you create. So you'd be getting old and you still have to keep writing content. Like you're basically like a machine. There was a month where they owed us for two months and I had to keep writing for two months without pay on that bottom feeder income. So yeah. it was brutal. I remember this particular day that was in 2019, January, when the owner of the company was owing so many people and he had gone on holiday to Scotland with his family to a zoo one of these um, theme parks. And he was sending me pictures of him and his family at the theme parks. And he, he was owing people salaries and yet he was going on holiday and he had the audacity yeah. to be sending me pictures. And I just could not fathom how somebody could be so cold and so cruel. But this is the reality for people in developing countries. Yeah. That's really unfortunate. And uh, yes, so the company, uh, as I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile, is Daily Post Copywriting. Yeah, so definitely. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say this: fuck you, Daily Post Copywriting. That's <laughs> awful, and you should be shut down. Like that's ridiculous. Uh, that is ridiculous. So, fuck you uh, if you're if you ever listen to this. Uh, he won't. He doesn't. He's he's yeah. like isolated from all of us, so he doesn't listen to anything. Yeah. Well, maybe somebody will send send this his way he can go find some place to i don't i do i don't know what but that's just really um uh, that's really awful and and i think it um maybe it speaks to uh you know a larger a larger issue um when it comes to and we talked a little bit about this with alina benny who is uh you know she's from from india and, you know, as a person uh, from the U.S., and I, I believe that there's also this bias in the U.K., when you hear the word we're going to outsource to India, the implicit bias is that, one, it's going to cost less, and two, there's likely going to be a reduction in quality, if for nothing else, because of the language barrier, but more likely because of a combination of that as well as um the conditions that you know the, the the people are working uh working in as well as maybe not necessarily being familiar in, in the way that they should that a that an in that an in country copywriter might be but i'm going to ask i'm going to ask you um what has your experience been you you shared one story uh with respect to the, the sorts of bias that you might be getting as you're, um, you know, as you're now beginning to get uh, job, job offers, work offers, contracts, clients, those types of things. Have you run up against any bias because of where yeah. you're, you're at? Yeah, definitely. I, I remember the first US-based client I got and when we're on the first call, he asked, after we'd spoken for 30 minutes, he asked me, can you speak English? Like, we had been speaking for 30 minutes, conversing in English language, just as you and I are talking right now, Jacob. And mm -hmm. just imagine after this conversation, you end the call with, can you speak English? Like, am I be speaking Arabic or German all of this time? I don't understand. Those are the kind yeah. of things that I get. Like, I've seen people who, who, who thought I was white because of the kind of copy I wrote on LinkedIn. Like, I don't know, people can be very, very oblivious. So they see the copy I'm writing, they reach out on my email and then they jump on the call and then they realize that I'm black and I live in Africa 
and immediately you can just see that it's it's over it's over like they are no they're no longer interested i've had people who once i told them i was nigerian then they start talking about nigerian scammers nigerian prince and all of all that and that's the end i've had people who had who had questioned some of the samples i've sent to them in my portfolio and they're like did you really write this wow this is really good for an african writer i've had people who have asked me wow yeah you're, you're, you're an seo hmm that's that's smart like you're an african and you're an seo you, you, you've really got jobs then like it sounds strange to them that i'm african and i'm black and i'm in seo because they think that seo is for smart people and i cannot be any of those things initially i did not know how to how to respond to those things but as i started to find myself more i became more open about all of these biases and i started talking about it more and it just kind of fizzled out from there because people started becoming more aware that it's not okay to say this or it's not okay to say this so definitely i've dealt with a ton of bias it's hard doing business when you live in a developing country because Mm -hmm. you have to prove to people that you can speak english that you can write english that you can communicate with their audience and that they should pay you just as much as they are paying copywriters who live in developed countries. Yeah, I think that is amazing perspective, I think, to share. Um, and from the from the U.S. side, uh, unless you, you are proactively going to research what's going on in Africa, the most that you typically hear, the average American, I would say, is just how impoverished it is and and that's what you get unless you're going to uh to do research so i think that a lot of the bias bias comes from uh comes from that and comes from i think the lack of what we see which i think to some degree uh might almost dehumanize uh people to some degree from africa as if they're not uh capable of equal things or as if they're not um you know, as if there aren't people within that group that are that are really smart. And of course, just like us, there are people probably uh, within that group that are on the other end of the spectrum as well. And, and you're just people. It's no different than over here. There are really smart and really stupid people over here. Um, and, you know, I think it's I think it's an interesting point that you bring up, especially now that we're, you know, deep into the pandemic, uh, you know, with with covid uh, and remote work is, I think, way more acceptable than it was 12 months ago because mm-hmm. companies that were old school, that were used to in office and thought that that was the only way that you could operate, um, are now probably being open to the idea that no, you don't. There's, of course, there's something that is missed in an office environment, but you can operate remote. So, what does where somebody live have to do with how much they get paid, right? It, 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 I mean, other than the cost of living, uh, you know, okay, I'm in Ohio in the United States. Of course, if I move to Los Angeles, the cost of living is going to be higher, right? But that has to do with living, not what you get paid for a service that you provide. So exactly, if you're providing a service and the work that you're doing is as high quality uh, as somebody in country, then I don't understand what being uh, from Nigeria has to do with it. And I'm glad you take that position. You should. Uh, you should value your work. I tell that. I would tell that to anybody. And um, you, you don't need me to tell that to you, but I. But I'm going to say it anyway. So. 
yeah i just find it crazy yeah that's the reality of the world we live in there are always going to be people who want to exploit others so hard world we live in yeah yes yes it is um so you know i want to i want to transition because we have talked to a lot of people that um come at seo from the from the copywriting side and my experience with copywriters has been um that you know not all seos are copywriters and not all copywriters are seos right so how did you you know once you started copywriting discover seo is a thing that you really enjoyed doing Okay, so it just came naturally for me, to be honest. Like, when I was working for the content meal, like I said, the content I always enjoy writing most was always content around SEO, digital marketing, Texas. So when I decided to freelance, it was bringing all of that together, content SEO and writing for SaaS and tech companies. And I just realized that even without even knowing what topic clustering was or keyword clustering was, I already started creating that as a way of creating content on my own blog. And then as I started to learn more, then it hit me that, okay, this is the content that you enjoy writing the most. This is the content that doesn't seem like hard work. This is the content that you wake up, you do, and it feels rewarding. And that was how I started removing things for my services. I started removing product copy, um, landing pages, website copy, and I now became like specialized in just content SEO. So I'm not really SEO copywriter. I'm not really doing SEO copywriting. I'm more like content SEO, which means that I'm creating SEO content like long form pieces to help clients educate their audience and rank for keywords and topics that they want to own. And then on the strategy side, I'm building out that cluster so that they're not just creating content willy-nilly. They are creating content based on data and based on what their audience wants to see. So it's still SEO, but it's, it's SEO for the user. And I enjoy that stuff. I enjoy looking at the data. I enjoy turning it into content. I enjoy taking that um, strategy and breaking it down into, into um, briefs. I just really enjoy that whole process of doing content SEO. It just comes naturally for me. I can look at a keyword, look at my client's website, and then tell how much work needs to go into before I even start to do all of the research. So I think that that stuff has to come naturally to you or you're just going to struggle if you decide to do SEO. And then what made you, because there are a lot of ways you can go in in the SEO world, a lot of types of clients you Mm -hmm. can take on. And and obviously working for the content mill, you probably took on just about every different type of client under the sun. Uh, What made you really center in on uh, SaaS companies uh, as well as tech-oriented companies as kind of your ideal client? Okay, first of all, it's because there is like a shit ton of SaaS companies out there. Like every day there's a new SaaS company who is getting funded. I'm always looking for the easiest way out. On LinkedIn, on Twitter, I'm always talking about how I'm the laziest motherfucker on planet Earth. So in view of that, I'm always asking myself, what is going to be the easiest way for you to get shit done and get paid the most money? A ton of SaaS and tech companies, cool. That just checked the box for me. Every other place I I could think of, uh, the market is kind of very, very like small. And if the market is small, then you have more freelancers fighting for like um, few clients. And because I already have that disadvantage of living in Africa, then I don't want that. I want something with a very big market where I can just go in, take my share of the pie 
and just do it easily. So SaaS and tech was just easy for me because this was the content I'd already been doing. I already had samples from my portfolio from working in the content meal that I could show to clients. And from there, it just became easier. Most of the friends I had in the freelance com- in the community were also SaaS and tech copywriters. So they were sending leads my way. So it was just easy. So it was just the easiest thing for me to do. Finally, I, I enjoyed like looking at something that's supposed to be complex and figuring out the easiest way to break it down so that someone who is not a techie or who doesn't like understand geek language can look at this content and go like, oh, so this is what this means. It's interesting. I feel like it's an interesting way that you describe yourself because good God, uh, if you've worked a hundred hours a week and call yourself lazy, I don't know what to call myself. I guess I'm like doubly lazy. Uh, so, <laughs> good lord, I don't know how how you can uh, you know do. do nah, that. I don't. I, that's call why I call lazy. myself lazy because I'm intentional about being lazy. I don't work that long hours anymore. So yeah. my life mission going forward is to work the least hours while making the most money. I'm done with that lifestyle. That sounds that sounds like the way to go. You're efficient. Uh, very efficient. That reminds me a lot of Hamlet. Very efficient. Uh, very, very efficient. So you've been, um, you know, really, I, I feel like, you know, over the, the course of maybe uh, the last couple of months, years, uh, really working on developing your, your personal brand. And I think the interesting thing about this podcast is, um, you know, maybe at the beginning, we had a set plan. Uh, and I'm not going to lie, like there is a list that Jeff and I compile of people that we'd like to talk to that list constantly grows and evolves. And really where our interviews come from, it, it's no pun intended, it's quite organic. So uh, the reason I say that is because we, as we bump into people through our social media interactions that we find to be interesting, that's when we reach out and and bring people on the show. So it's really kind of organic. Uh, and that's how, you know, as you've been developing your personal brand, that's how I noticed you uh, to begin with and, you know, dug into your background and said, I think that Chima would be somebody that would bring an interesting perspective to our show. So on the other side, what has it been like uh, developing your personal brand and becoming kind of a more well-known entity within the within the industry yeah like that's that's very interesting because i feel like this is what sets me apart from the average freelancer who is black or who is living in africa i have a personal brand that people know and these days when people come to me they expect to pay top dollar for content and that happened because i i've been very careful with the way that i've developed my brand i started with linkedin I started with being intentional with the people I was connecting with. Who did I want to impress? I wanted to impress content marketers, people who are in SEO, and people I considered peers in the freelance community. Connecting with these people, creating content that they found valuable, that solved problems for them, and then engaging with the content that they were creating. Then going to their inboxes and carrying on that conversation, not to ask for work, but just to get to know them better. So by developing this organic relationship, that was not focused on give me work, but more like, I like you as a person and I want to get to know you better. Then it just became easier for people to start taking note of me, people to start rooting for me and then start recommending me and, and saying, okay, hey, you're looking for a guest on your podcast, you're looking for your guest on your blog, you should reach out to Chima. And then by December, I started 
moving over to Twitter, I think that's when a lot of great stuff started happening. Twitter is really good. It's where I met you. It's where I've met a lot of amazing SEO people. And then I brought that funny side that I have where I talk about fat, I talk about poop, I swear like a motherfucker. I started bringing that side over to Twitter because I feel like most SEOs are boring. Sorry about that. They are boring. We just, we just stiff-necked and we just don't let go. So I, I just want to do something different from all of that, but still retaining my personal brand. And people really resonate with that. People resonate when I hosted SEO chat. And then first question I asked was, where is the weirdest place you've ever farted and what happened? People resonate with when I'm t- telling weird stories about not wearing pants to a Zoom meeting and then having to turn the computer away and then jumping in my seat so that the clients can't see that I'm not wearing pants. People resonate when I'm talking about the fact that I had to go to the toilet to poop during a Zoom meeting and the clients could hear me in the toilet doing my business. <laughs> so it's all of this stuff that is funny but makes me human that makes people really, really get to know me because... People don't connect with brands. They connect with human beings. And the funnier you are, the more personable you are, the more vulnerable you are, the easier it is for them to want to just come into your circle and feel that energy. So that has been my personal brand. Being funny, being human, being vulnerable, and sharing tips that people can just go apply as it relates to content and SEO. Yeah, I think it is. um, There's something about seeing somebody be very authentic uh, yeah. that is very intri- uh, intriguing uh, and compelling. Uh, and I'm I'm not going to lie, I'm probably guilty uh, of being very, like, very boring on social media. It's not that I feel like I'm a super boring person, although I might, I might be kind of a boring, boring person. Uh, but I, I very intentionally keep it very, um, conservative i would say on my on my social media more because i just you know i don't want to get into any potential and i'm not saying that you you're going to risk getting into any potential future headaches but more that like i don't even want to give myself a chance to get into any any sorts of headaches so i'm boring uh leaning towards like bringing a lot of positivity you'll rarely see me unless it's about my sports teams bringing bringing negativity uh but let's be honest uh poop and farts and all of those things in my personal life i think are hilarious and i teach that to my my kids think it's hilarious so like it's very well known in my my family is known for being very open about that stuff so it cracks me up (laughs) so yes i'm right with you uh and just to confirm everybody on this uh, on this particular interview uh wearing pants so very very important very important (laughs) so what challenges as you've been you know as you've been breaking into content and seo twitter if any have you have you run into honestly none like i i think i think i i do i do social media and i'm networking so well that it comes naturally to me when I when I joined LinkedIn, I, the, the biggest mistake I would say I made was code messaging. Code messaging just puts this barrier between you and someone you're trying to impress if they don't get it. And then it's like, it's going to be the impression that they have of you going forward. So if I was to go back and start again, I would never have sent a single code message. But I wouldn't consider that a challenge. I would consider that a learning curve. Regarding challenges, I would say none, like none, absolutely none. I think I have done everything the way I've always wanted to do it. I have grown the way I wanted to grow. I have been in charge of every single process. 
So it's been amazing. Like I'm going at the pace I want to grow. So no challenges at all, none whatsoever. That's awesome. No, that is uh, that is really good to hear. Uh, and I I think this is a good transition. So I want to I want to get into and we again I did it again. I forgot to introduce the core topic the, of the day, but you touched on it a little bit earlier. So what we're going to uh, dig into is uh, topic clusters and content strategy and how they uh, how they kind of play together. So okay. for our audience, uh, can you describe what is a topic cluster? Okay, so a topic cluster is a way for brands to, rather than just doing keyword research or keyword clustering, it's a way for you to own the topic. So you don't just rank for one keyword, you rank for as many keywords as possible relating to that topic. So rather than ranking for, um, um, let me just think of a word off the top of my head, ranking for mobile, for just um, what is a mobile phone. You'll be ranking for so many other keywords around mobile phones, like uh, where to buy a mobile phone, types of mobile phone, mobile phones that are 500 and all of all those keywords. Like you get to own the topic. So when people search for anything related to that topic, you are coming up on page one. That's what a topic cluster does. It's also a way for brands to, um, will I say, guide the user from the point when they enter the funnel at asking what is or how to, even past the point of purchase when they've already bought a product. So you specialize also on long form content, right? And when I think of topic clusters, um, I think of it in the in the lens of it's usually present in some sort of a knowledge hub, knowledge based, and it's sometimes tertiary to the services or products that a company sells, but it's a way to get people in either high up in the funnel, uh, maybe in the middle of the funnel, sometimes post-purchase. Uh, so do you, so from, I guess my question is, is a, a couple of things. So from a long form content perspective, is that the way you see it? Is our topic clusters usually like uh, aligning to needing long form content and how do you, I guess, pull it back to what a company sells or provides? Okay. So because I'm a long form content writer, I'm always looking for ways to tie in long form content with topic clusters. When a client jumps on a call and they're like, they need a piece of blog post. I try to educate them on the fact that you can't rank by one piece of blog post. You need to have like several content pieces interlinking properly for you to optimize your chance of ranking for a competitive keyword. Now that leads to them saying, okay, let's get the topic cluster done. In building the topic cluster, I'm considering two things. What the client wants to be known for and what people already think of when they see that client's website. So that's stage one, keyword clustering, and second stage, user journey. So the first cluster, if they just want something small, is keyword clustering. But if they want something more detailed, then we really start to dig deep into the user journey. Where's the break-off point between top of the funnel and middle of the funnel? Okay, the biggest break-off point is middle of the funnel and bottom of the funnel. What kind of content are we supposed to create to prevent that break-off point? Regarding service pages, service pages come along at the bottom of the funnel because the intent for service pages is to get them to buy. So you would have those kind of pages at the bottom of the funnel. And I don't even like to include those in topic clusters because I like to keep topic clusters as educational as possible and then reserve 
landing pages or case studies for bottom of the funnel, but always with an intent to educate before sell. So when I'm building topic clusters, for the most part, the clients I work with already have those service pages. They already have um, buy pages and all of all those product pages. What they need is content to connect the gap between those service pages that they have and where the user is in their journey. So tying back to what you're saying, it's not, it's not really about service pages because service pages, you, you most times you already have that when you're building your website. You have it as a core of your website pages. It's already there. It's not going to be included in the cluster. What you're going to have in the cluster is top of the funnel, middle of the funnel, and then bottom of the funnel, like case studies, like um, use cases and all of all that type of content. And then landing pages, comparison pages. Those are the kind of stuff you're going to have. And then you're going to link all of these pages back to those service pages so that every piece of traffic, every traffic, everybody who's coming in and reading those content has an opportunity to go back to your service pages and then see what it is you really do and how to, um, will I say, buy from you or whatever. Yeah, I think this is one of the things that as as it stands with Google today, with a lot of the SaaS companies that I'm I'm working with, the the services that they provide and some of the um, a lot of the the high end keywords that describe their services, when you actually go and look at the rankings, the types of information that is being pulled in tends to be a mix of aggregators, so people talking about the best companies at whatever that particular thing is, as well as like very high funnel, long form content, like what is X? Uh, and it drives me a little bit crazy because it it's really difficult sometimes on those long form pages to do what you need to do to sell right away. Uh, so that kind of leads into going back because you want the, the the page that's gonna sell to be the one ranking. So you almost feel like you have to build this Frankenstein of a page, I'll just call it, uh, where it is a, a, a mix and a balance of content that talks about the product, but content that also is there to answer those very high level informational types of questions. And it feels so, when you're doing it, sometimes it works. It feels so unnatural. <laughs> unnatural uh, is probably the, the best word for it, but Google rewards, you know, the informational high funnel, long form, long form content. Uh, but sometimes that content, it just doesn't sell no matter how much you link it back. So how do you, I don't know how, you know, as somebody that does that for a living, uh, you know, how do you think about that? Okay, I, I remember working with this Australian client. He was a, he's a digital marketer. I learned a lot from him. And he was the person that taught me how to insert value proposition when writing long form content. So what most companies do is that they I don't I, I, I don't know why they do this, but they just want to educate and a lot of them don't even mention what they do. Like there is no tie-in between educating and mentioning your brand. When I'm writing long form content, there's always going to be a value proposition. What is the thing we're going to sell on this page? What is going to be the call to action at the end of this page? We're writing, we're writing to educate, but at the same time, I'm also looking for opportunities to insert the client's value proposition. So for instance, I was writing for, I was creating, I was writing for this brand called Remedy. They're a um, financial services company. 
similar to TransferWise, Western Union, and that kind of stuff. So we're writing content on how people can send money back home to Brazil for kids, maybe for their kids' education, maybe for loved ones who are sick and all of all that. But the tie-in is that if you need to send money back home, you can use Remitly to send money home to your family. We're giving them the information on what you need to be doing if you want to send money home. We're telling them, okay, this is how Brazil's educational system works. This is how healthcare works in Brazil. This is what you should know if you are moving to Brazil. But we're also finding that place where we can insert the value proposition of, okay, you're going to Brazil on holiday, you run out of cash, you can use Remitly to get money to, your, to, wherever, you, to wherever you are in Brazil so that you always have cash on hand. You're moving to Brazil or you're working remotely for a company in the US, but you live in Brazil. This is what you need to do to get set up for taxes. This is what you need to do to set up properly as a remote worker. But this is how you need to get paid using my client services. So there's always the opportunity for you to tie in what a brand does. Let me give you a more recent example. I wrote a content last week for a SaaS company called Golings. Now, what's unique about this company is that their audience already defines them as a URL shortening tool, but they don't have any piece of content on their website around URL shortening because they don't want to be associated with that keyword. They wanted to stand apart from that keyword. And I told them that you, you need to own this keyword because everybody already calls you a URL shortening tool. What we're doing is that when I'm writing a resource like what is a URL shortener, I'm also talking about how GoLinks help them shorten links, how GoLinks help them to keep their website secure. Basically, all of the unique things that my client does that other UI shortening tools are not doing. Now, I come down to a part that talks about security. And then I'm like, okay, all the other tools like TinyURL and the rest of them are public facing, which means that anybody, even a hacker, can go in there and create a short URL. But my client only does internal URLs, which means that only teammates can create URL and nobody from outside can see what you're creating, making it very secure. Do you see how I'm tying in their value proposition in this long form piece of content that says, what is uh, a URL shortener? I also have a subhead in India that says, is Golink the same as Brand X? Brand X is going to be the biggest competitor. And then I'm explaining how my client is different what makes them unique, what makes them stand out from brand X so that people can have that aha moment where it hits them that, okay, why most years shot need to do this generic function? My client takes it one step further in these unique aspects. So they come away understanding what a year shortener is, but they also have that residual knowledge of how my client performs year shortening differently and better from all the other competitors. That is something that long-form content can do for you. But again, it requires working with an expert who understands how to insert that value proposition without making it look unnatural, like you said, but also why educating the user so that they don't feel so too, but they feel educated, but without even knowing that they are now thinking of this brand as the right and ultimate choice for them when they need that solution. Yeah, I think that is a that is an excellent way to think about it and to position it, which brings me kind of to an, another side of the um, of the discussion, and that's from the the copyright from the perspective of the the copywriter. And I'll I'll kind of give you a synopsis of what I've run into pretty often. I think it's a pretty common mm-hmm. problem in the industry, right? Mm-hmm. So as a copywriter, you. Um, not you, but many tend to work off of a 
uh, a word count ba based on how many words am I going to produce for you. Uh, so when I deal with uh, clients that either are working through a third party copywriter or who have an in-house copywriting team, sometimes they have a strategy that looks a lot like this. We are going to produce eight posts a month, 200 words per post. And my first question to them is, why eight? Why 200 <laughs> words? What's behind that? And a lot of times it, it is based on budget that the client might have to pay for whatever the, the, the word count is that they feel like they arbitrarily need. Uh, when I got to startups.com before I worked at, at, um, at Search Discovery, that's what they were doing. Uh, they were uh, working with a copywriter uh, and the copywriter at that point in time was not very super, was not very well versed in, in organic search and kind of how you have to, to go about it. So they were mass producing content as fast as they could get it out. Uh, they had an arbitrary threshold and they really, when I asked them, I said, what's the reason for this threshold? Uh, 500 words. Why? No reason. Uh, no reason at all. It's just we figured that's a good amount of words and that's what we can pay. Uh, so I said, hold on. All right, let's back up. And I've done this with many companies. So if you want to perform well organically, well, some posts maybe need to be 400 words. Some may need to be 4,000. And a lot of it depends on what Google is rewarding, what type of content other people are producing. Uh, and it's not necessarily to say that word count is the only factor in play, but when you go and look at search results, it's a data point that you should collect just to get an understanding of the depth that other people are going into. So when you are trying to rank in a SERP where the average word count is two or 3,000 words and you're bringing your 200 word article to the party, you don't stand a chance. Uh, so I'm super against setting arbitrary word count and content production uh, standards. And I'm more on you know, a custom word count per post. The problem that that presents is a different problem is it makes it really hard on a month to month basis to scope the cost, of course, of, of, of what the content writer is going to be producing because each post may need a different you know, a different level of support. And it, of course, makes it hard for them also to schedule work. So now I'm going to bring you in uh, to offer your perspective as somebody that does that every day. Okay, so this is another thing that's building a topic cluster does because it also works as a content calendar. For each um, topic in the cluster, I do the research I use tools like Phrase, SEMrush, and Sofa to look at what is ranking. And then these tools can just give me like a bird's eye view of how long each of the content pieces on page one are for that particular keyword. And then they can aggregate all of that and show me an average word count and say, okay, this is how long you need your content needs to be to beat out these other guys based on word counts. Now, I don't charge for word counts. I charge in ranges. So I have a word count of 1,500 words to 1,900 words. And then I'm going to write within that range so that I'm writing the best piece of content. I always try to go above what everybody else is doing in terms of word counts so that my content is longer, but it's also more educational, more informative. I'm trying to include more 
questions that people are asking just to make it as beefy as possible. So with a topic cluster, the client can see that, okay, the first content piece is 35 or 3,000 to 3,500 words. Second one is around 250 to 3,000. Third one is 15 to 1,9. And then they can plan for that and say, how long, how much is it going to cost us to write these 10 pieces of content if we're outsourcing to copywriters? If we're going to do this every month, then they can build the cluster ahead early and then plan for it every quarter. Okay. Um, second quarter, April to this, how many pieces of content are we creating? How long is it, is it, is it um, content going to be? How much is it going to cost? And that actually helps them plan. Personally, I don't even, I don't write content under 1,500 words. If you want me to write under 1,500 words, I'm going to charge you the same thing I'm charging for writing long-term content, long-form content. So that's working against you. But for these clients, where there is a need to create shorter content, like sometimes the content, the length, the word count doesn't even have to be more than 1,200, 1,300, or 1,000 words. I put that in there and they can find someone to write that piece of content. The word count is determined based on what everybody else is doing because you want to stay competitive on quality and on word count. But you also don't want to give your writers precise word count and say write 500 words or write 1,000 words because the mind doesn't work that way. The words that you need to put on the page do not work that range. So it's always better when you're writing in ranges and you're saying, okay, this article needs to be 1,000 words to 1,200 words or 1,500 words to 1,900 words. So that in between that bracket, they are writing the best content possible. But all of this is coming from that topic cluster, which also works as a content calendar, like I said. And if they plan ahead, then they have an idea of how much it's going to cost month by month. And just for those SEOs, uh, you know, that are ready to get out their pitchforks because we're talking too much about word count. From a professional copywriter, should you add more words just for the sake of adding more words for SEO? Okay. Um, this is hard <laughs> because the truth is that longer form always performs better. The stats is there. I think I made a post about this on LinkedIn that supports that longer form always ranks better. You have people like Neil Patel, you have people like HubSpot, all of these guys always create long form content. But you should never, ever write long-form content just for the sake of SEO. That's just bullshit. Write content that as long as it needs to be to rank, but first of all, to educate the reader. The moment you've finished writing and you feel like you've done a good job of educating the reader, that is where the post ends. Anything else just detracts and then it's just long for the sake of being long and then you might even start to have a high bounce rate and which Google is going to interpret as a lack of engagement. And that's also going to affect your ranking so write it as long as it needs to be to educate the reader you educate the reader you can also do the same job of optimizing that content to rank on seo i've i have content pieces that are 8500 words ranking on page one it's not about word count it's about how long does this content needs to be to educate the reader so you heard it there adding words for words sake while long form does tend to perform better is bullshit I agree yes. with that. <laughs> All right. Uh, so before we move on to Twitter questions of the week, uh, any parting thoughts on topic clusters, long form content, copywriting content strategy? Yeah. Um, I think the thing I always tell people to do is that don't obsess over what, or don't obsess over um, 
keyword data like um, monthly searches. I think that's something people tend to do a lot. They just look at monthly searches and they're like, oh, if it doesn't have anybody searching for it, then I'm not going to create that content. But for me, the best performing pieces I have on my website don't even have keyword volume. I write these content pieces based on what people want to see. And that should be what drives your content strategy. What does your audience need to see to convert? What problems do you want to be solving for them? Keyword volume or not, create that piece of content. Absolutely. And as SEOs, uh, we do tend to follow the search volume. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I'm, I've probably been guilty of that from uh, from from time to time. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So uh, let's move on to Twitter questions of the week. Uh, and this has been an excellent segment for us. It is definitely a segment that we enjoy. I enjoy uh, awarding swag, although I will say that since I've gone on vacation, I'm a little bit behind with reaching out to people. So for all of you that have won, I haven't forgotten about you. Uh, you will get your swag. I will reach out uh, and make sure that uh, if you've uh, asked a question and you've been uh, declared the winner, uh, you will get uh, some page two podcast merchandise. The only thing that I would ask uh, for the winners is uh, we really like to see uh, people taking pictures uh, with our, you know, with our swag. We've started to get people to do that. Uh, I find it uh, a little funny that we've had to ask uh, on many occasions for people to do that, but it is what it is. So I'm going to ask whoever wins, we would love it. We would love it. We do not require it, uh, but we would love it uh, for you to take a picture with your swag and tag us on Twitter. Uh, it's pretty awesome to see your hard work, uh, you know, be hanging around out there uh, with with other people. So pretty cool. Uh, all right. So we have four questions today. Uh, and our first question, and I'm just going to let you know, Chima, uh, when we're going to go through the questions, you'll answer them and you are also going to get to pick the winner. So that is uh, an important component. Sometimes it surprises the, uh, the guests. And I'm just going to make sure you know, as you're going through this, think about who asked the best question. Okay. All right. First question uh, from writer Juliet at writer Juliet underscore on Twitter. How do you gather topic cluster ideas for a particular brand? And do you ever have to pitch the topic cluster approach for SEO to your clients? If yes, how do you do that? That's a, that's a, that's a very good question. That's a very good question. Okay. So the first thing I do when I'm building topic clusters is competitive research. That's like a shortcut to take. You want to see what is my competitor doing that's working for them. I get all of that data and then I move over to keyword clustering take all of that data, move, out, move over to asking sales and customer facing team. What kind of questions are you getting around this topic? Get all of that uh, in an Excel spreadsheet. And then the final step is where I kind of brainstorm by putting myself in the customer shoe and asking myself, what kind of questions would they be asking moving from top of the funnel to middle of the funnel, bottom of the funnel and post purchase? There's a lot of really good insights in this section. I think all of those questions that I get, put them in um, the Excel spreadsheet. And then I use tool like Bozumo to see what is trending around that keyword or topic, add that to the keyword data, start to trim the list down, go over the final um, topics with the client, and then whatever comes out of that becomes the topic cluster content. Now, regarding um, offering this as a service, because like I said, when I was speaking, 
on the agency ahead podcast is not something that comes up naturally it's something i have to upsell clients on or prospects on and it's actually pretty easy to do most of the times people come to me and say i want a piece of blog post and they are spending to rank right off the bat so i have to show them and say this piece of blog post is not going to rank 4,000 words. I don't care how long it's going to be. You're not going to rank for a keyboard that has 3,000 search monthly searches with one piece of blog post where you have people who have already, who have already built a cluster around this keyword. So I open my zoom, um, sharing screen. I show them a, a topic cluster I've designed for a client, the keywords in there, the topics in there. And then I show them how it has helped this client to rank for multiple keywords around that topic. Once I can allow them or enable them to visualize what the result is going to be like or what the top, topic cluster looks like, they just want it. And something that really sells the topic cluster for me is adding content briefs. So the topic cluster itself is just data. The content brief is what really makes the topic cluster thick because you can take those briefs and give to your writers if you decide that Chima is too expensive for you. So once they see an example of that brief, it can, they're just kind of like, oh my God, this is incredible. I want this. It's done for, it has meta description. It has um, word count. It has everything that they're going to need to do on page SEO. Everything they're going to need to give to the writer. It's kind of like a done for you stuff. And if there's one thing I've, I've seen with clients, they want ease. You can, I sell them on the ease of creating content strategy with the topic cluster. Once they get that, it's just going from there, building the cluster, and then they want me to write the content for them. So selling them on the, on the cluster is by, it starts with them asking that they want a piece of content and then saying, you can't rank with one piece of content. This is what you need to be doing to rank, sharing my screen with them, and then helping them to visualize the results. Excellent. Yeah, I'm a huge, uh, huge proponent of uh, briefs. Uh, question number two comes from Jonas Sickler at Jonas Sickler on Twitter. What do you love most about SEO writing? Um, I would say, I think I like creating briefs a lot. Like it's it, because a good brief, I feel like it's like 90% of the job. Writing is just 10% for me that brief is what really makes me realize that okay this this is actually going to do well so the brief doing the research all of all the work that goes into the writing itself is why i enjoy more than the actual writing okay moving on to question number three from former guest uh and frequent question asker mr mark alves at mark alves on twitter uh everyone gripes about zoom fatigue but you pulled off a series of remote in-depth one-on-one conversations in march judging by the screenshots everyone looked delighted how did you pull this off and how does this skill give you an edge at seo okay can you repeat that question Sure can. Uh, so from Mark Alves, uh, okay. ev- everyone gripes about Zoom fatigue, but you pulled off a series of remote, in-depth, one-on-one okay. conversations in March. Judging by the screenshots, everyone looked delighted. How did you pull this off and how does this skill give you an edge at SEO? Okay, number one, it doesn't give me an edge in SEO. I do it because, like I said, I think building relationships is very important. It's it's at the core of who I am as a person and what I've built my, built my brand around. I jump on call with all of these SEO professionals because social media is not enough. We're just communicating with people. We're not seeing them. It, it just seems kind of distant. 
So I want the people that I speak to to also be people that I have seen. And that's why I do this. But mostly, I don't have Zoom fatigue because I like looking at my face. I have a very nice face. I'm on Zoom calls and I'm looking, I'm spending half attention looking at the client or whoever I'm talking to. And then the other half, I'm like, oh my God, damn, you look good. And all of all that looking at my face <laughs> stuff makes me really enjoy Zoom. So I never ever get Zoom fatigue because I like my face. I like looking at it. I enjoy being on video. I like the sound of my own voice. I'm funny. It just makes it easy to have those conversations. But there's an SEO edge in the sense that once you've spoken to people, it's different. It's like they know you. They kind of become allies. They kind of become loyalists. And when there's somebody who needs your service, you're the first person who is top of mind for them because they kind of feel loyal to you. So I won't say it gives me an SEO edge, but it, it, it helps me to build better relationships with people in the SEO community. And I can say uh, from experience that nobody uh, is bringing business to Jeff or I because of our faces. <laughs> We've got faces for radio. Um, all right. Fourth question from UC Nuancho. Forgive me in advance if I mispronounced your name, but I did my best at Blackie underscore cute on Twitter. All my freelancing or all my freelance writing life. I've only written contents for my clients as per their specification specifications and it has been great so far the problem is my top client wants me to step up he gave me a task without any particular specifications his instruction was to do whatever i can to get the copy to rank as number one on google on google and get people to buy his products what should i do okay let me start by breaking down with the fact that um people pay more for content when there's an edge like you need to be doing something that other people are not doing for them to pay more for that piece of content and for me it that includes giving them the brief doing the keyword research adding royalty free images or whatever it is i'm doing for clients and make them pay what i charge secondly do you, that sounds like a very shitty client if you are listening to this i think you need to let that client go nobody like it's not possible for a client to tell me she might need a piece of content without giving me instructions like there's got to be a goal for that content what do you want to achieve with this content who is the target audience um like there's just, there's just got to be like some sort of instruction anybody who's telling you to just go write content that's going to work on page one number two you can't even guarantee results rule of seo never ever guarantee number one position on google that's a red flag right there. Seems like you have a bad client situation. Maybe you need to educate them and have a proper structure or a proper onboarding process of what happens when, when you sign on a client. Okay, this is a form to fill that says, this is the guidelines. This is um, the goals for the content. I'm going to create the content brief based on this keyword. You approve it, I get writing, but I'm not guaranteeing results. Nobody should ever guarantee results. If they want you to guarantee results, that means they're holding you liable if that content doesn't rank. And there's a thousand and one things beyond the content itself that goes into ranking. Are they promoting that piece of content? Do they have a content distribution plan? That's, that's not something you're doing for them. That's something they have to do for themselves. Are they building links? All of all this stuff happens past content. There's, there's, there's all of this background work that people don't even realize that goes into creating SEO content that ranks. 
and i'm always very clear with my clients i'm telling them i'm creating this piece of content for you but i hope you have a content strategy um, a content distribution plan i hope you have a plan to build links to this content so that you are giving the content the best chance to go on page one and not everything you create is going to go on page one nobody i don't not even hubspot i don't know any brand that can claim that every piece of content they've written ended up on page one. So this client is setting on realistic expectations. They're setting you up for failure. It's not about you stepping up. It's about them trying to like, um, it's just basically about them setting on realistic expectations on you. You need to have a conversation with your client on what the goals of the content is and what expectations should be that does not involve you guaranteeing page one rankings. Not just page one, position one. Yes, on page one. position. Yeah, imagine, is, imagine position one. <laughs> yeah, insane. I um, I, part of me wonders what keyword they want to um want Probably to. Probably going to be something very competitive. Judging yeah. by the way they are speaking. And you took all the words right out of my mouth because I was like going to wait until you um finished and then add on to that how unrealistic I thought that was, and even though like they. Uh, you, you see that that this may be your top client in terms of like maybe what they pay you, uh, but in this particular case, uh, Chima's right. They're setting you up for uh, failure, so you probably need to level set with them. Um, not necessarily saying that you should get rid of your client because I don't know what what the business relationship with. I don't know what the past relationship is with them, but sounds like an unreasonable client that's not a reasonable request so yeah that is what it is uh all right so let's pick a winner uh who's the winner of the swag yeah the first the first question was one was amazing so that's the winner all right writer juliet uh we are going to be reaching out to you uh i'm gonna assume your name's juliet we're gonna we're gonna connect with you and we are going to uh, work together to figure out which of our swag you would like. Uh, we've got t-shirts, we've got hoodies, uh, we've got uh, coasters, both wood and laser. Here's our wood coaster, which I'm sure everybody has seen. Um, yeah, so we'll reach out uh, and we will get you hooked up with some page two podcast swag. Uh, all right, let's close the episode. So Chima, we like to ask all of our guests one final question. So imagine a person is is just getting into SEO uh, this year. It's their first year. It's their first day. Uh, what would what advice would you give them? Okay, so SEO is really really big and broad and wide mm-hmm. and so overwhelming when you're just starting out. Our advice is to pick a niche as quickly as possible. Find a niche and settle in there. Do not try to be this generalist SEO who is doing on page tech SEO. Um, who's just trying to do everything it's overwhelming there's there's news there's something about seo coming out every day that if you don't have a niche then you're always going to feel like you're behind and you always it's going to affect your confidence level it's going to affect the work that you do but the moment you pick a niche and you settle in there maybe you're doing just tech seo maybe you're doing one page um content seo like i am or you just pick one part of seo then you can really own it and you can become the authority for that you become the person that people think of when they're looking for that particular SEO skill. So pick a niche as soon as possible and just stay there. Excellent advice, excellent advice. So Chima, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Chima Major. You can find me on LinkedIn with my name also, Chima Major. Or my website, zenithcopy.com. 
Yes, I encourage everybody, if you have copywriting needs, uh, go check out her website. Uh, sounds like you're doing some really, really amazing, uh, amazing work. Uh, so I just want to say thank you so much uh, for coming on. Uh, thank you for battling through our internet and technology issues on the front end, listeners. You probably will never see that because we, you know, we edit our podcast post-production. Uh, but Shima definitely stayed on a little bit longer because we went through some some technology issues. And that's just one of the uh, things that you get into sometimes when you run a podcast that is dependent on internet in order to in order to work. So uh, really appreciate you being willing to, to go a little bit of extra time uh, to, to talk with us. Pretty awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jacob, for being patient. Yep. Uh, And for our audience, we have two episodes left into the season before Jeff and I kind of sail off into the sunset for the summer uh, before we launch season four. Those episodes are going to be awesome. Uh, So we're talking next week to Dawn Anderson. uh, And then our finale is going to be uh, Azim Ahmad, uh, Mr. Azim Digital. That's who you know him as himself. So he's going to be coming on for our finale. Those episodes are going to be uh awesome and uh yeah uh you know as as everybody probably knows we record on fridays release early in the week the following week so uh you know if you're listening to this have an excellent week yeah thank you so much for having me jacob and thank you to everyone who has listened to this really long ass podcast (laughs) thank you thank you so much for listening to the page two podcast If you'd like to find out more about the show or listen to new episodes, visit us at page2podcast.fm. That's page, the number two, podcast.fm. Our episodes are also available on a number of other platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Breaker, Deezer, Overcast, CastBox, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. Additionally, You can also listen and watch our show on our YouTube channel or follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. If you'd like to get in touch with us, contact us at thepage2podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, happy optimizing.